Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Andrew Brochard. Andrew, what's going on, man? Not too much. Crazy times here with the the trade freeze and every team scrambling. It's uh, it's fun. Yeah, I'd say not too much is a bit of an understatement considering what what's gone on in the past few hours. <laughs> yeah, I guess that that's a good point. That's a good point. I spent the morning gardening actually, so I like worked up my sweat and then I, I came inside, had a shower, and then I was like, wait a second, the Habs traded Nathan Beaulieu. What the hell's going on? Yeah, I mean, I woke up thinking I'd get to enjoy a pretty relaxing Saturday afternoon, maybe lounge around the house a bit, go for a walk, get some groceries, and then uh I was quickly reminded that June is the month where Mark Bergevin turns into that meme of the Joker from the Batman movie where he just says, And here we go, and all of a sudden <laughs> just kinda watches the world burn and uh yeah, he's. Uh, I guess he's providing us with content at least, so we got to give Mark Bergevin credit there. Yeah, June is the month where Mark Bergevin trades all of his defensemen who can skate. <laughs> That's like what he does in this month, you know. Uh, you know, as much as I like the uh, Jonathan Druin trade for mm. for what they need right now, uh, like I think he's basically a perfect fit up front. Man, that defense. Like uh, I was talking to uh, Wheaton Oil on Twitter just before this podcast started and like they literally have nobody on their defense in their prime like not not a, if, if davidson gets taken in uh, the draft and like i like uh, brandon davidson but he's probably a third pair guy like you know a, a push for like a number 4 if he develops properly yep. over the next couple of years but he's the only guy in his mid 20s there's that uh, jarabek guy who i think is 26 or 27 but again like you you've got nobody in their prime that's nuts. Well, especially considering uh, what they've had over the past handful of months. Like, they just, like, willingly let, like, Mark Barbario go, and they trade for Nikita yep. Nesterov, and now, you know, they, they don't tender him. They basically relinquish his RFA rights, and it looks like he's going to go to the KHL, and they trade Sergachev, and, yeah, obviously, this the Subban trade from last summer, and uh, what looked like a pretty decent group with, with some depth all of a sudden, as you mentioned, looks pretty barren. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, you know, the Nestorov, I wasn't very impressed with Nestorov in Montreal. I watched him closely because, like, his numbers were pretty good. He was clearly a guy who was super sheltered in Tampa, and, like, he was, uh, you know, handled the puck like a bit of a grenade. Uh, he could set pucks up 
or uh, set shots up in the offensive zone, but man, every other zone, he was a dangerous man to have with the puck on his stick. But again, like that's that trade was okay in isolation. It was like, okay, they're adding defensive depth. That's good. Hmm. But then they immediately waived Barbario, who is a far superior player and immediately was playing like top pair minutes in Colorado. And okay. Yeah, it's Colorado, but he was still playing really well. So (laughs) this is a guy that, uh, you know, has basically been really good everywhere he's gone and they just undervalued him for whatever reason. Okay, well, let's let's break down both of the trades they've made over the past couple of days, uh, one by one. And, and before we get started, I mean, we should mention that you know it's going to be a pretty hectic couple of days here. So uh, I'm not sure like what the shelf life of this podcast is going to be because by the time uh, I, I guess you know there's going to be the trade freeze now that hit today at, at 3 p.m. Eastern and it won't be lifted until Thursday morning. So in theory, the Canadians won't be able to make any more trades until until that Thursday morning. But um, yeah, and then we have. The expansion draft protection lists are going to get submitted and, and released on Sunday morning. And then we're going to have a few days here to, to do mock drafts until Vegas officially announces who they've taken on Wednesday evening at the, at the annual awards show. So that's sort of the, the lay of the land for the next couple of days. And, and with that out of the way, let's get, let's get to this Drew and trade because there's a couple different layers to here. I, I mean, when I first saw the trade, I thought it was a, just a complete slam dunk for the Canadians because, you know, they, they made it pretty clear that it, they're a win now team for a number of different reasons, and it seems like Druen can step into the lineup immediately and provide them with a, with a certain dynamic that they're going to be desperately lacking, especially if, if Alex Radulov walks this summer as a free agent. So I love that, and you know, just Druen as a talent. I mean, I feel like it's warranting a little bit of a, a discussion and some praise here because aside from, I guess, possibly Connor McDavid, he was the number one. Holy crap, look at what this dude just did with a puck gift star in the NHL in, in the 2016-17 season, and he was remarkable to watch. And while I don't, I think it's a bit alarming that he wasn't really able to necessarily drive play or produce as much at 5-on-5 as you'd hope for someone with a player of his natural abilities. He did also just turn 22 and, and was yanked around quite a bit by the Lightning for a few years there, so I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt in that regard. Yeah, so am I. And like, I took a pretty deep look on him in it. Like with the sport logic stats and like in terms of creating scoring chances for his teammates, he's up there with like, you know, Artemi Panarin and Patrick Kane and and that tier of players. So like he's really, really good. But in terms of his own personal scoring chances, like he's a huge perimeter shooter. He he doesn't go and drive the net very often outside of like his crazy stick plays that uh, make him like the end one mixtape star of the NHL kind of guy. But uh, yeah, he, he's not going to be a huge goal scorer, especially at even strength. The, the annoying thing about the Duran trade is that already, like you can tell what's going to happen with him. Like the expectations are ridiculous. Like I've, I've seen people say that like, Oh, you know, it's not unreasonable to expect a 35 goal, 80 point season out of him next year. It's like, no, no, it is like not even Pacioretty can do that. And for people who are not, understanding this like max pacioretty is a way better hockey player than jonathan druin especially at this moment in time maybe druin will be better in three to four years or something but druin is the second line left wing that's where he's slotted in that lineup if he gets more ice time than pacioretty next year man that'll be mind-blowing because it would make no sense so it'll be interesting to see how he handles not just uh, you know the french canadian great hope 
in Montreal, but also the expectations of putting up offensive numbers that he's never even come close to. Like, I mean, he's a year removed from a four goal season and yeah, he only played like 30 games or whatever, but his goal scoring numbers aren't very good. Yeah, people sometimes let their uh, let their minds wander with with these expectations. I mean, I, I feel like it's generally it, it might be a bit extreme in, in his example, but I mean, just league wide, like it feels like fans generally haven't recalibrated their expectations for what the new norms are for like a first line producer at the NHL level, and and they still kind of have their heads in the clouds there. So. Uh, I can definitely see Druen, uh, getting criticized right out of the gate because he's not absolutely just, you know, taking the NHL by storm. But I, 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 I'm still pretty optimistic that he's gonna, he's gonna live up to his end of the bargain, especially as the contract goes on. Like, what, what do you think about the fact that, you know, they gave him, obviously they had to kind of give him that contract they did right out of the gate. And then, you know, I'm not sure if how, if he, how much he's gonna be worth in, in year one or two, but it definitely seems like, towards the end of that deal, that 5.5 is going to seem like a pretty good value. Yeah, probably. I mean, I, I look at it in, in the same context as like what Mark Bergeron did with Max Pacioretty five years ago, where he signed him to an extension for 4.5 and like 4.5 then is kind of like 5.5 now. So right. I don't think Drouin has that high of a two-way ceiling, but he is what they need. I feel like the contract is fair value. I kind of wish they would have bought more than one UFA year for that high of a a salary because like I would say based on last year last two years he's probably closer to a four or four point five million dollar player right now but then again like the average uh, salary in the NHL is over three million now I think so like at a certain point the salaries like our uh, perception of them is kind of skewed be- simply because of guys like Sidney Crosby who take eight point seven when they're really worth like twelve thirteen right you know so uh, he's one of those mid mid range guys who's probably getting what he's worth two years from now mm-hmm. uh, I would say and that that's fine what I find interesting about that whole situation is when Bergevin came in he was like hard line very clear that every prospect in the organization or out, like that they would bring in after their entry level deal would be getting a, a two or three year or one, two or three year bridge deal before they went long-term. The times that he's abandoned that were Brendan Gallagher, which is fine because Gallagher came in with like absurd contract demands that were like, Oh, under 4 million for Brendan Gallagher. That's great. And he went ahead and signed that. But then Galchenyuk, apparently this is a rumor anyway, because they had the same agent, I believe mm-hmm. uh, Galchenyuk came in, and uh, he asked for the same contract as Gallagher, which would have been absurdly great. You know, six years under four million for a possible first or second line center. That's amazing. And the Canadians were like, no, you're getting a bridge. And they went like hard on him, like did not want to go any longer than two years. Same thing they did with Subban. And then all of a sudden, Jonathan Drouin comes in and he gets the six years immediately. And I get that they wanted to get him signed quick after the trade, you know, make this big PR situation where they literally signed the contract in front of the media at the press conference, which was like, come on, man, this is not a TV show. This is not Donald Trump. Yeah. But at the same time, I, I like, I highly question the way that Bergevin awards contracts now. And it seems like the two guys who he had, who had the most talent that were brought through the organization, he just did not like, and therefore they were subject to this blanket policy of the team but nobody else is. And that just drives me nuts. Is there a bigger kiss of death in the NHL right now than Mark Bergevin saying he's not going to trade you? No. <laughs> I mean, he even, like, man, I, I guess the only time that he's ever said 
that he wasn't going to do something and didn't do it immediately was when he said that he was not going to fire Michel Therrien. And that took almost a year later. So well, I, I, I guess it's the only one that he sticks by. I mean, in, in his defense, like, you know, there isn't really any, uh, you know, strategic competitive advantage to making your intentions publicly known and then following through with them. Like it, it's perfectly fine to be a little coy with the media and, and keep your cards close to your vest and, and not necessarily reveal all your plans out in the open. But it is funny contrasting, uh, that sort of style versus like a guy like Brian McClellan in Washington, for example, who like year after year goes like, okay, uh, we pretty clearly need like a defenseman and he goes and signs Matt Niskanen. We, we clearly need a, a winger now and he signs, uh, you know, he trades for TJ Oshie and he signs Justin Williams. But we need a third-line center now. He trades for Lars Eller. And I, I've always kind of appreciated that sort of uh, style where he just kind of calls his shot and does it. But obviously, you know, there, there's multiple different ways to get the job done. Yeah, I, I kind of love that from McClellan. He's like Owen Nolan in the All-Star game with the breakaway on Dominic Hoshik, right? Yeah. Where he just like stops halfway down and points at the corner and scores. And man, the deals that he was able to pull off too. Like every time he said that he wanted to get something, he got probably the best available of what was out there. I mean, Matt Niskanen was a fantastic buy. Uh, I guess he also got Brooks Orbick that year. So I guess we'll, yeah, we'll on, on average, if you put those two together, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. So it's still pretty good. But, and then TJ Oshie worked out great for them. Uh, Justin Williams worked out great for them. Lars Zeller is looking to work out great for them. That that's some pretty impressive work there. Yeah. Okay. So back back to Drew, and I think the the fit is interesting on this team because you know as you mentioned um, on this podcast and in that piece you wrote up as a reaction uh, article for for Sportsnet.ca. You know, Drew is a naturally really gifted playmaker, and he he's involved in a ton of different uh, scoring chance generating plays, and he seems like he'd be a really sort of tantalizing fit on Alex Galchenyuk's wing, considering that passing ability and what Galchenyuk's shown so far in his NHL career is definitely like an above average finisher shooting the puck. And that seems like it would be a match made in heaven, but then there's also sort of, you got to wonder what the next domino is to, is going to be to fall here because it seems like when they acquired for Drew and it sort of gave a bit more validity to these rumors we've been hearing for for weeks now that Galchenyuk was on his way out in trade and whether they'd use him as a chip to kind of recoup some defensive talent. So I don't know, like as a hockey fan, I'd love to see those two guys play together, but it still seems like even though a trade hasn't necessarily happened yet, that it seems kind of inevitable, which is a bit bit kind of disappointing from my perspective. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, I think that if the Canadians were to roll with a Duran Galchenyuk Gallagher line as their second line, like that is much better than they've ever had in in my lifetime. Uh, that that would be extremely exciting to watch. And then you've still got like if they're able to retain Radulov, you've got Patrick and Radulov on the first line, and kind of like this year, it doesn't even matter who the center is because those guys are so good. It's really intriguing, but yeah, that they clearly don't like Galchenyuk very much. Now, what kind of came out today from a few different people was that they believe that Bolu was a bad influence on Galchenyuk off the ice. So maybe it is that they've moved on from Bolu and they feel like now Galchenyuk can get another chance and this year will be like his last chance one year under Julian to see what can come out of it. But it does kind of seem like they'd rather move on from Galchenyuk too, which is a real shame because the rumors going around are that they want to trade Galchenyuk for a defensive defenseman, which is like, dude, 
you don't need that. That's like the last thing you need. Even like there was a rumor that it was going to be like Galchenyuk for Jalmerson. And I have huge respect for Jalmerson. Yeah. I think he's probably the best pure defensive defenseman in the world. Mm. But not a need, man. You need somebody who can move the puck and create some offense. Like you've still got Carey Price back there. You've got Claude Julian coaching. He's going to develop the good defensive system. He already was doing wonders uh, at the end of last season. You know, they only allowed 12 goals in six games against the Rangers. The defense is not the problem. It, it does seem like sometimes these NHL GMs operate under the working belief that there's like a cap on how much uh, exciting, young, dynamic offensive talent you can have in your lineup. It's like, oh, we got one guy. Well, that means this other guy's all of a sudden instantly expendable. We can't have both of them. It's like you're, you're allowed to have both things like it, you can't have too much of a good thing. Yeah, and I wonder if that's like kind of what they thought with Jeff Petrie too, right? Because like when Petrie came into the Canadians, like all of a sudden they had Petrie and Subban rushing the puck up the up the right side there, and they were just like it was the first time that the Canadians under Terry were actually dominating a uh, play outside of the little lockout shortened season where they had uh, Galchenyuk, Gallagher, and Eller as a third line that was, like, tearing people apart. You know, they had 45, 46 minutes a night where their defensemen were just owning teams. And it seemed like they just felt that they only needed one guy who could skate the puck up. And, you know, now that Beaulieu's gone, too, because he was the only other guy who, you know, he was playing limited minutes, but he could actually skate with the puck. Now the only guy on their defense that can skate the puck is Petrie. So I, I actually, I feel bad for him because he also got, he took a lot of crap last year uh, because, you know, the way it works in the NHL is if one defensive pairing has this crazy sky high PDO, usually that comes back at you on another pairing. And it happened to be Petrie's pairing who was the better play driving pairing last year, but was on for more goals while Shea Weber's pairing got, you know, killed in Corsi, but had like a 60% on ice goals, four percentage and people are ripping on Petrie all the time this year when he's the only guy who can actually carry the puck. Yeah. It's a lot of pressure on him. And I think teams are going to key on him like crazy. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think the world of Drew Petrie, I'm sure he's going to handle that task. Uh, fine, but it is not ideal that they're going to be relying on him that much to that extent. I mean, you know, the reason why I mentioned earlier how, like right off the bat, like my, my first, at first blush, I love this trade from, from Montreal's perspective. And I really thought that they, they got the better of it. But then as I started thinking about it, it does feel like one of those trades that's just sort of, you know, in this, in this hot take culture, it might not be uh, the sexiest opinion, but it, it's one of those trades that just kind of makes sense for both teams because you can sort of see why Tampa Bay did it, right? I mean, they were clearly reluctant or, or unwilling to pay that big of a, of a contract fee that the, that the Canadians wound up giving up Drew in and they had the roster crunch with the expansion draft looming and the very realistic possibility that they were going to lose a really good player. And they get Mikhail Sergachev, who everyone loves and seems like a very reasonable, calculated bet to be the type of impact defenseman that every team is seeking and there aren't seemingly enough of to go around in, in today's NHL. So, you know, they kind of lose the more dynamic, better player right now that seems like he's going to contribute more this season. But moving forward, like it seems like a pretty calculated risk from Eiserman's perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when you look at outside of that Hedman and Strawman pairing, 
like Tampa Bay's defense was not good for the last couple of years, right? Like that was probably their biggest problem last year uh, outside of Stamkos missing, you know, almost the entire year and all the other injuries that they had. Their defense is just brutal outside of those two guys. Uh, Sergachev is a huge upgrade for them there if he pans out. I think he's got a really good chance to pan out. And I, I totally agree with you that it's a, it's a perfect fit for both teams. And it also like it kind of – clarifies exactly what the Canadians are trying to do here is they see their window as much as Mark Bergevin says he doesn't believe in cup windows their window is the next like one year is their best chance next year and then when if Carey Price resigns he'll be making a lot more money but they probably have another two years after that where you know Shea Weber is still quite good uh Jeff Petrie's in his early 30s Max Pacioretty will still be on contract but after that, you know, they've got no defensemen coming up who are capable of becoming second or first pair guys, in my opinion. Yes. I, I know a lot of people like uh, Noah Juleson. I don't really see it there. Like, he seems to be a fairly safe player. He's tough, but he looks like third pair is written all over him for mm-hmm. me. I just don't think he has the the creativity and the puck-carrying ability to be a real top four guy. And, you know, Simon Bork, again, same thing, real steady guy, but not super talented. Uh, Jerbeck might be okay, but again, you never know with KHL defensemen. Uh, Nikita Zaitsev looks real good, but Zaitsev was a lot better in the KHL than Jerbeck was. It's it's a tough situation. <laughs> you know, and then you've still got Alexi Emelin kicking around, which I think that's what blows my mind the most, is they've moved on from so many guys for various reasons. And then there's this other guy who just sucks it up year after year after year. He's just brutal. And then they put him with Shea Weber for, you know, almost all of last year. And he just destroys Shea Weber's five on five offense, which is already not that great. Like Shea Weber last, last year, while he was on the ice, the Canadians only scored 1.95 goals for per 60 at Mm. five on five. Like that's, Brutal, man. That's like worst team in the league territory. You know, his on-ice shooting percentage was like 6.5. And that's, you know, Alexi Emelin. He doesn't – he's the death of offense. So, yeah. like, I, it just blows my mind that they didn't buy him out or find a way to move him. Maybe they still will. But if he's back next year, that's just nuts to me. It, like, you know, Nathan Beaulieu is the defensive problem. But then they watch Emelin get turnstiled 15 times a night, and they just don't mind because he's a big hitter. Well, that's the thing with with the Druen trade and why it's you know it's you can reconcile the fact that you can, it's very palatable giving up such a premium asset because it does sort of resolidify this idea that the Canadians are a win now team and you know even if you you know disagree with the way you go about it like as long as a GM has uh, you know some sort of a plan and is kind of following that plan I'm willing to see it through it as long as it's coherent and that perfectly makes sense with how uh, you know the values that they have their two best players in Patretti and Price had right now that they'd go for it while they still can and have them for cheaper than market value but if that's the case and you're working under that assumption then how do you reconcile you know looking at a roster that's desperately in need of defensemen already that can skate and move the puck and not to mention have youth on their side and all of a sudden you you acknowledge that and you just trade one of the only remaining guys that checks those boxes for a third round pick that has what something like a 20 percent chance or so of becoming an nhl regular and even if that is the case and you get lucky with that it's still probably a solid four or five years away from happening and really doesn't 
kind of gel with this current plan that you have going right now at all. It just seems like a very bizarre uh, reversal of course from what they've been doing for the past however long. Well, and above and beyond that, even if they do, you know, hit the ball out of the park on that pick, the Canadians don't like to trust their young players. Like, I I put this out on Twitter earlier, and unfortunately I wasn't very clear when I said it, but uh, in the Bergevin slash Sylvain Lefebvre era, so like the last five years plus, like going back to the 2009 draft, the Canadians have only developed one player as a full-time Montreal Canadian from the AHL, and that was Nathan Beaulieu. You know, Brendan Gallagher played like 30 games there during the lockout, and he was not good, and then he was in the NHL, and he was great. So, like, something was wrong there right away. You could tell, like, when you're producing fewer points in the American Hockey League than the NHL, that's that's really weird. But they, they've developed no one. Uh, the only guy that seems to have developed well is Arturi Lekkonen, who was developed in Sweden, mm-hmm. you know? So like, and then like Alex Galchenyuk, who went straight to the NHL out of junior, they just don't have any patience for guys. And again, Galchenyuk is a guy that they don't seem to like very much. Like it's, it's a tough organization to really get your head around because I remember when Bergevin took over, he was like extremely clear. And there was a reason why people were so excited you know, he was saying we're going to build through the draft. You know, two years from now, we're going to be competing for a Stanley Cup. And none of that ever came true. Uh, they don't develop any other guys that they drafted. Like, almost all of them are either traded away really quickly or, you know, uh, they get a couple cups of coffee and they jerk them around so much that they lose all value and they trade them for nothing. Yeah. Well, the thing with Bo- Boyu is who, by the way, has one of the most sneaky, difficult names to both say and write, um, is, <laughs> is he's plagued by that sort of Lars Zeller, Brendan Smith syndrome, and there's countless other guys over the past few years where it's like this former top prospect that was super highly regarded and unfortunately uh, never really put it all together and hit those lofty heights that people thought he might. And then now all of a sudden, because that's the case, people have trouble getting past that and evaluating them fairly based on what they actually are in the present versus how disappointed they are that you know they they aren't those players they thought they might be and that's obviously a very flawed way to evaluate your assets because like one is based in reality and other is based upon these pipe dreams and we obviously know which one you should probably be operating under so it's just it's always it's always puzzling to me when when these guys get unfairly criticized because of something that's completely out of their own control yeah, like Nathan Bully was drafted six years ago. I, I think we can let go of the draft position yeah. thing pretty easily by now. And like I had a few people get angry at me uh, today over the trade because, you know, like, oh, well, you know, he was given a chance to be a first pairing defenseman with Shea Weber this year and he failed. And I was like, yeah, I, I totally agree. He wasn't good enough to play with Shea Weber against top top end competition, but he doesn't need to be a first pairing guy. Mm. If Nathan Bully is your number four, like, that's still pretty good. Even, you know, for where he was drafted, 17th overall, getting a decent number four defenseman at that position is not the worst thing in the world. It's not like, you know, grabbing a fourth liner at 26 or something, you know, like, it's still not a bad draft pick. It's not amazing, but it's good. And you have to value guys who bring something to the table. And Nathan Beaulieu does. And, you know, one of the things that people don't give him enough credit for last year is, when he was on the ice last year, the Canadians produced a ton of offense, uh, five on five and on the power play. I believe he actually led the Canadians power play in primary assists 
which is crazy considering Andre Markov's on that team and Bull, you didn't play very much. So like he, he was really developing offensively and he definitely struggled defensively last year. Uh, no time more so than the playoffs. And I feel like that might be kind of what sealed his fate was struggling in the playoffs. He got caught on the wrong side of the puck a little bit too often. And maybe it's just one of those situations where they saw him bad and they just made a snap decision based on a very few games, which, you know, people say teams don't do, but teams definitely do. I think people need to generally sort of feel comfortable forming opinions for themselves and not necessarily just, you know, completely gullibly and, and blindly just believing everything teams tell them. And, and you know, you, you see this a lot whenever trades like this happen. And um, I tweeted something about how I didn't like this from the Canadians' perspective. And all of a sudden you get this trickle-down effect of all these diehard Canadians fans jumping in your mentions just pointing out like Nathan Beaulieu sucks. Or, like the Canadians didn't even feel comfortable playing him in the playoffs. He was a healthy scratch. And it's like, okay, that's, that's fine. But the, you can't just necessarily assume that, you know, the Canadians and, and this, whoever is making the decisions for the lineups all of a sudden is right a hundred percent of the times. Like you're, you're allowed to maybe critic, critique them or think that they didn't optimally use their assets or were playing the wrong guys. And even if Nathan, even if Nathan Boyu struggled. So it's like, it's, it's just always kind of comical to me to see how quickly people just jump to the team's offense. It just, you know, they must be right. They're, they're working in NHL as opposed to actually critically forming their own opinions on the players and, and the talent available. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is like those same people will say, Oh, well, you know, the Andre our Andreas Martinson contract is good, but he was taken out of the lineup in the playoffs after game two, not game five. Mm-hmm. So like it, were they wrong about him to take him out? Because like his his uh, position is a lot less high stress than playing defense in the playoffs. And like Bolu still played almost twenty minutes a game last year. Like he wasn't super relied on, but he played some big minutes. And you know his problem has always been consistency. Because when he was good, he was extremely good. Like you know top four worthy guy, maybe even up to like gusting up to a number three guy. Uh, he has talent, you know. Uh, I remember when they finally uh, put him back in the lineup in the playoffs in 2014. That was basically the turning point against the Boston Bruins, where they had, you know, been putting Douglas Murray in the lineup and getting throttled completely, like 75% Corsi for the Bruins while Murray was on the ice. And then they put Bolu in, and he made a couple of like fantastic passes, including one uh, a lob pass to Patch ready for a breakaway goal, and that basically turned the tide in that series. Uh, you know, he's got the talent to be a, a good player in this league, and I, I wonder, you know, looking at Phil Housley, mm-hmm. you know, another really good puck moving defenseman, a great skater in Buffalo as coach, maybe he uh, sees something in Bolu that he could develop because you know. Look what he did with uh, Ryan Ellis and Matthias Ekholm. Not to take anything away from those players, they were always very good. But he did a good job helping those guys along. You know, when you describe Phil Housley as a, you know, as a as a as a great puck mover and skater, and then and then you kind of threw in the caveat as a coach. Like I, I don't even think you need that. I think he's already one of Buffalo's top six defensemen, even at, at <laughs> even at the age of fifty three or whatever he is. <laughs> you think he's better than Ristolainen? I don't know if he's better than Ristolainen, but he's definitely, definitely better than better Josh Georges. Oh, yes, we went the same route. And I think Josh Georges might actually be older. I need to fact check that, but I, I, I'm not sure. But it, his, it, his knees definitely are. Man, like, I, I, I'm surprised that the Canadians weren't able to recoup 
some sort of better asset or something because I wonder how much they were act- actually actively shopping him around, and then I'm surprised that no other team bit and was willing to pay a bit more. I mean, not necessarily that the Canadians view the Sabres as their biggest competition in the Atlantic Division by any means, but they are a team that's, you know, up and coming. They have nice young players, especially up front, and have good goaltending, and now have a new coach and GM, and it seems like they're headed in the right direction. And if anything, they just desperately needed something resembling an HL caliber defenseman based on what they were using last year. And regardless of what you think of Boyu, that's a massive upgrade for them, and they basically just got him for a marginal asset. So I don't know about gift wrapping a team in your division, a player like that that they so desperately need. It just seems like a, a bizarre move from the Canadians' perspective. Yeah, isn't that the craziest part of this trade is like usually when you're trading in division, you expect to like pay a premium when you're giving up like the player, right? If you're trading player for picks or player for prospects, if you're trading in division, you want to make sure you're not getting screwed over. But they just got swindled here. It it doesn't make any sense. Uh, Slightly off topic, but I remember I'm I'm pretty sure I remember talking to you and a few other people uh, several years ago, actually about guys like Josh Georges and Dan Girardi, guys who like never really missed games, but played like that shot blocking physical style. And I remember like a bunch of people getting really upset with us saying like, these guys are going to break down really quick because they're like, Oh, they never suffer injuries. They never miss games, man. Look what happened to those two guys. Like just looking back at it, like again, they're still not missing a lot of games, but they broke down hard. Yep. Yeah, they did. So, okay. So where, Spinning it forward, where do the Habs go from here? Um, you know, we've mentioned the idea of a Galchenyuk trade. I think that would obviously be a mistake, especially if some of the rumors are true in terms of, you know, I, I don't, I really don't see a fit there with Minnesota's defenseman because while I like a guy like Marco Scandella, like he's much more of a guy you can sort of, you know, just find and replace as opposed to what Galchenyuk brings to the table. And I, I I definitely think doing it for Jonas Brodin would be a massive mistake. And I just don't see sort of the natural fit. Like, I agree that defense is a need and I desperately need a guy who can, who can move the puck. But those guys typically, especially like if they're in their prime, aren't available. So I just don't see the natural trade there if you are going to move Galchenyuk one for one for a guy like that. Yeah, I'm not seeing it there either. Uh, I think... Sp- Scandella is a second pairing guy. I, I honestly, I'm not even that high on Brodeen, who, no. uh, you know, a lot of people are say is the best of the three Minnesota D that are available. I, I don't see a fit there. I mean, if they're trading Galchenyuk for a defenseman, that would blow my mind because they, you know, even if they lose Bolu for a third and they lose Davidson in the expansion draft, like the bottom of your lineup for defensemen, you can find ways to get those guys, you know. If they manage to lose Sergachev and Galchenyuk and Bolyu, which were like their three biggest trading assets coming in here with the draft being so poorly thought of, and they don't get a center, I, I am going to laugh so hard. I don't. Honestly. I, I'm genuinely curious. I'd love for someone to explain to me why they're as high on Jonas Brodin as they are, because... I think people are still stuck in that, you know, 2012-13 shortened season where he, I, I don't I don't remember if he was a Calder finalist or he was on the periphery, but you know, everyone was super high on him because they just immediately thrust him into this 
massive role playing with Ryan Suter and he was playing like 25 minutes a night consistently and people were impressed by the fact that such a young defenseman who was still like 19 or 20 years old at the time was able to shoulder that type of a workload and he really hasn't developed at all in fact I think he's taken steps back since then and I feel like people are just sort of assuming that you know he's a Swedish defenseman and he doesn't put up a lot of points so that must mean that he's really good on defense like I don't in the numbers or on the eye test there isn't anything to actually point to the fact that Jonas Brodeen is a difference-making defenseman. Like, he's a perfectly fine third-pairing guy, I guess, and he's not a massive liability, but he doesn't actually move the needle at all in, in any respect. So I just don't... I just don't see where all the love for him is coming from. It feels like it's a lot of this sort of groupthink mentality where one person might have just said it and then all of a sudden everyone just kind of took it for the truth and has kind of gone with that as something that's not actually really the case in reality. Yeah, it's one of those situations where it seems like it's an idea that just took hold and there's never been any backing of it. Mm-hmm. And like I watched Brodin a fair amount because Minnesota was a pretty exciting team to watch this year with Bruce Boudreau behind the helm. Uh, I, I don't see anything in the numbers, even like looking at the stuff that we have at Sport Logic. I don't see much there to say that he's more than, you know, a middle of the lineup guy. I, I don't get the love, man. Yeah. I really don't. I guess he's one of those guys that people assume plays tough competition and therefore he doesn't need to drive play, uh, you know, like Shea Weber light kind of thing. But I don't know. Like, at least Shea Weber is actually good. Yeah, but there's one thing about, like, playing tough competition is fine, but if you're not doing anything with those minutes, then what's the point? Like, in theory, anyone can just play tough competition. It's like, what are you actually doing with those minutes that's warranting all the love? And he doesn't really do anything in those minutes yeah and even if you were playing them even like you know if all you are is a minute eater yeah unless you have the horses to you know if you're playing a minute eater for like 20 minutes a game unless you have the horses to go like all out offense when that guy's not on the ice then those types of players don't make any sense it's the same as like uh the theory behind fourth liners right Uh, what makes more sense trying to build a fourth line that just eats some minutes with some grinders and, you know, physically wears down the other team or a fourth line that can actually score. And, you know, how many series in the playoffs this year were won because a fourth line was actually utilized well instead of having, you know, a a bunch of knuckle draggers around there. Like, I mean, I, I think you could argue that the reason why Nashville lost game six in Stanley Cup final is because they threw, uh, McLeod back in there. Like, what was his purpose? He, there's no reason he should have played that game. Yeah, yeah, there really wasn't. For free PA Parento, man, just free him. <laughs> Poor PA Parento. <laughs> it's is it like it was, it was tough to argue for him in the playoffs. As much as like I like PA Parento, yeah. I talk to him in DMs a lot. I think he's a a really good underrated uh, middle of the lineup player. But he definitely was not a good fit in Nashville. Uh, I think part of that is the way that they played. Uh, Jack Hahn talked about it a lot that they kind of did a, a little bit of what Montreal did under Michel Therrien where they were they like to throw the puck to open space and then win battles with their speed or just uh, you know out battling players for the puck mm. and the one area that uh, Parento doesn't have is is speed right he's not a speed guy he's a cerebral type who you know makes plays by getting either lost in traffic in front of the net or he'll make a great pass he he's not a he's not a speed demon he definitely is not, uh, but not not many of us are. I, I'll, I'll, I'll say that. Um, no. He's a better skater than I am. Let's yes. say that. Well, uh, yes, uh, 
Agreed. Same here. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the, in terms of the question of where the Canadians go from here beyond the Galchenyuk trade, I mean they're kind of in an interesting spot because they have the you know the price contract looming next summer and patch ready the year after, and they have key contributors like Radulov and Markov who need new contracts this year, and especially in, in Radulov's case, like he was so remarkably affected for them last year that it, it's a tough pill to swallow to just you know say well that was a fun year but we're gonna let him go we're not gonna pick up the tab on on this new contract but at the same time if you know he is asking for a long-term deal it is it's it's definitely uh off-putting and scary to give him a deal four or five six years whatever so i, I don't know where they go from that it's more like i guess if you really are in the win now mode you might just have to bite the bullet and just do that because he helps you he gives you a better chance of winning next year and you deal with the consequences later but that's obviously not ideal either yeah i, I feel like the situation for bergerman is like he he seemed to like kind of throw a shot across the bow for radulov at the Duren uh contract signing slash news conference uh, like acquiring Druin gives them a little bit more leverage with Radulov because you know they have a guy who can do most of what Radulov does with the playmaking. Uh, like that was Radulov's big thing in Montreal last year was he was the one guy who could really dominate East West. They didn't really have anybody else who did that. Galchenyuk was good at it, but not as good as Radulov. Druin is a step above Galchenyuk, a little bit below Radulov at that. So like it, it's a big difference maker for them. But if they really want to improve their offense, they need to keep Galchenyuk. They need to bring back Radulov and you know, they needed to acquire Druin. So they, it might give them a bit more leverage in contract negotiations, but it doesn't change anything for them really. So I, I know that Radulov was apparently asking for eight years on his contract, which is crazy, but as much as it's crazy down the line, if I'm Mark Bergevin and I've thrown everything I have by trading Subban for Weber, by trading away Nathan Beaulieu for, for, for scraps, you know, like my average age of my top four D is 35. I look at the next couple years, Carey Price is going to be making like $10 million a year. If I pay Radulov right now and for eight more years and I win a Stanley Cup, am I going to be looking back in six years and say, oh man, I really regret signing Alex Radulov to this long contract? Probably not, because all he's got to do to cement his legacy forever is win one cup in Montreal. Yeah. And like people will say if they win one cup, oh, well, two would be great. But this city just wants one. You know, they, they want to break that that uh, 25 year drought. They want that over. And if he's able to do that, like no one will ever criticize him in the city again, even with the Subban trade. Well, yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And that is sort of the, the trouble you run into with, um, you know, how GMs operate because he's definitely in the right to to look out for himself and try to win now at at all costs. But uh, from an organizational perspective, it's pretty clear that the issues with that because even if you let's obviously if you win, you know the flags fly forever. But if you fall short and don't, which is much more realistic considering how tough yes. it is to win a, a Stanley Cup, all of a sudden you have nothing to show for it. And you know, like the Kings, for example, won won a couple cups, so so they're they're pretty set in that regard. But Dean Lombardi ride out, rides off into the sunset, and now you have Rob Blake just kind of picking up the scraps, and they've exactly. got their work cut out for them, and it's just not 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 a great spot to be in as an organization. 
Yeah, and you you could see like you know if you would go back to the first year that Ber- Mark Bergevin took over and the players that he inherited with, you know, Gal- he had the third overall pick in the draft, took Galchenyuk, you know, even if he would have taken Morgan Riley or Philippe Forsberg, who's friggin' amazing, you know, he was in a good position there. He inherited PK Subban, Carey Price, Max Pacioretty, you know, like he had a situation where you know over the next six to eight years, maybe you're talking multiple cups if you're a brilliant gm and you really manage the situation the situation well so like you know with the full benefit of hindsight even if you were to win one maybe you know you and i would look at it and say well you know it's not the greatest accomplishment it's it's good but there could have been things that were done better but for for everyone else around it, it it's probably not a big deal and you know he i think no matter what the situation that we're in now and you look at the prospect situation especially on defense uh, whether or not Bergevin fills out his contract or not, the next guy is going to be left with a major mess. Like there's, there's no arguing that like this team is built for the next two to three years and that's it. I can't wait for that to happen. Like whatever, how, however many years down the road and it to be like some, some stats guy that takes over and, and then the team just sucks for a few years because he's digging <laughs> out of that hole. And then everyone's like, that's see, analytics don't work. That's definitely what's going to happen. I mean, even this year, uh, a- after the playoffs, you know, like Michel Terrien, he had, uh, he, I think he won the, out of the first round twice and Claude Julian didn't. So all of a sudden people were like, Oh, well maybe Claude Julian is not a good coach. Michel Terrien would have won that series. It's like, Oh God, like, so ridiculous. To bring it full circle, the reason they they bowed out in the first round was because they took Andreas Martinson out of the lineup. This is true. Mm. They were, Can't I guess, one that. and one with him in it, and one and three with him out. I mean, they just gave him that extension, so it must mean that he's a valuable contributor. He will be in the opening night lineup, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, okay, before we get out of here, it's obviously not Canadians related, but we should take a few minutes to talk about the Mike Smith trade too. I mean, on first glance, it's a, it's a curious move because while he's, you know, pretty much a league average guy and, and that's perfectly fine. Like, I don't think he's going to be a liability for the flames. He is also 35 and it's very easy to envision him just like not being a league average guy anymore. And that tends to happen pretty quickly with goalies around that age. And it's also tough to. It's tough to make it to spin it as a good move for the Flames just because of the opportunity cost. Because regardless of the assets they gave up, which was like a, a third round pick and a, and, a, and a prospect defenseman, which isn't necessarily the biggest price, it's also you know there's so many cheap, intriguing names available this summer. Whether uh, you could have traded for them because. The, the, the team isn't going to use them as a number one guy or, or whether they're free agents like a Steve Mason type that would have seemed like more intriguing options. So it just kind of, it's, it's tough to rationalize it from Calgary's perspective. Yeah. It's a weird one because I think the major problem here is, you know, they didn't like Brian Elliott's inconsistency. So they acquired a goaltender who is pretty much way more inconsistent. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's a different kind of inconsistency because, you know, Elliott, within a season is either brilliant or terrible. He doesn't really have very many mid-range games, and that can be tough to deal with, you know, game to game for teams. Whereas Mike Smith has seasons where he's either brilliant or abysmal. Mm. And, you know, as much as he had, like, around a league average save percentage last year, uh, the Coyotes were by far 
the worst defensive team in the NHL last year. They were worse than Colorado, yeah. which is impressive considering Colorado was ridiculously bad and embarrassing to watch. Yeah. But the Coyotes were even worse. And the main reason why the Coyotes were, you know, respectable for most of the season, or even like remember the beginning of the season when they were almost like in a playoff spot, was Mike Smith was actually really good. Uh, for the last two years, he's been like well above uh, league average in like save percentage above expected. Uh, he, he's been really, really good, really consistently good. But like you said, at 35, man, anything can happen. And that's like, he's only signed for two years, so it's not that big of a deal. Uh, his cap hit for the Flames, I think it's 4.25. So it's not a crippling contract, but it's it's again one of those situations where the Flames went out and got a goalie that's probably going to be okay. You know, he's not going to be the game-breaking guy that they're searching for, most likely. Right. Which is disappointing because I think we both like their roster quite a bit, and they were one of the most impressive teams in terms of what they looked like at the start of last season and what they looked like towards the end of it. And, you know, they dramatically improved, and they have a lot working for them. And it's one of those things where if they add, you know, a serviceable sort of second, third-pairing defenseman and another winger that can just slot in and play on, on their top line with Goodrow and, and Monaghan, all of a sudden you, you're kind of cooking. And I don't think that this is the answer they were looking for in net. And I'm not sure that it's going to be the type of upgrade that they that they probably think they're getting from what they got from Elliott and Chad Johnson last year. It seems like it's a lot of sort of familiarity-based things with, with how you know Brad Tree Living started in Arizona and it was there when, when Mike Smith had that one remarkable season. So I, I, I don't know. I just... It's one of those things where it's not definitely crippling, as you said, or, or the worst move in the world by any means, but it's also just sort of like a, it's kind of like a blah trade. Yeah, it's a bit of a like spinning your wheels kind of yes. situation, right? Like, uh, although I do wonder, the odds are probably super low for this, but say that they, because they traded Jan- Chad Johnson, right? Or like he moved somewhere, or maybe he moved in this trade. I remember seeing it, or the rights to him, right. him went to Arizona. Let's just pretend we'll play fantasy for a second that they keep Brian Elliott and Mike Smith. That's not a bad situation. If no. you've got those two guys platooning, you know, you can take some of the stress off the 35 year old goaltender by playing, playing Brian Elliott 35 to 45 games. I think that's a decent situation. You can just basically go with the hot hand. And I don't think it's likely that Brian Elliott's going to have that bad of a season again. So they might be in a pretty good situation in goal if, if they keep both of those guys. It's not. The worst thing in the world. I, I do wonder, though, I think the one thing for Calgary, you know, as much as they need, you know, another winger that they can slot in with Monahan and Goudreau, they got to get somebody to play with uh, TJ Brody, mm. right? Like, he's got to get somebody because, man, he was held down by so many anchors last year. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and then even that third pairing. I mean, you know, I think Eng- England's coming off the books, which is huge, but there's a lot of Matt Bartkowski involved in the operation and yeah. that's not, that's, that's not optimal. So, but I mean, the, the see, this is, it's tricky because I was talking about this, um, the other day, you know, I was kind of mocking, uh, the, the Sabres bringing in Phil Housley because of just the fact that, you know, he's going from this, from this team that had these four just amazing, pretty much number one defensemen that he could, he could play with that to make him look like a genius to all of a sudden this team that is, has probably the worst, uh, defense group in the league. And I was talking to Sabres fans and I was like, well, the silver lining is that 
it shouldn't be that difficult to add to like dramatically improve your defense just because there are so many of these undervalued guys that aren't necessarily the most impressive but can kind of skate and move the puck and don't hurt you and are definitely legitimate NHLers you can get for 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 cheap the Mark Barbario types but then at the same time it seems like NHL teams are so reluctant to actually go that route and give those guys the chances that there isn't that much reason to believe that your team is willing to do to kind of break the mold and do that so it's like the 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 obvious repair is there but it's like the likelihood of it actually happening isn't that high yeah i mean maybe calgary should have given up a third round pick from nathan bullyu that'd be a pretty good fit it would have been a massive improvement over the guys they were using uh last year like the yerky yoki pakas and the anglands and the barkowskis and and even the michael stones so yeah i that's why i was surprised that the canadians were only able to get the third from a division rival it seems like a team like the flames and there's a bunch of others i mean would have been willing to give up even like a conditional second or something for him it's just kind of curious to me yeah, it's really weird. And I feel like this is like kind of to kind of bring everything full circle. It's a problem that Montreal has is they they just beat their their own players down so hard. And it's not everyone will say like, oh, it's the fans, you know, how hard they are on the team or it's the media. It's not the fans or the media. It's what the organization puts out there. And it's always extremely clear. You can look at the same couple of sources in the media who the organization you know, lets little feelers out into saying, like, basically, this guy needs to be trashed. This guy, you know, he let us down. He's a problem. You know, we, we keep hearing how, like, you know, every single young player in Montreal has off-ice issues. Well, I'm sure that, that they're not the only team with players who have off-ice issues, but they're certainly the team that we know about it the most. And not all of that is going to be on the media or because there's a bit more of a tabloidy culture in Quebec. It Part of it is because the organization lets things get out there on purpose. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's just the way it is. And they have no remorse with that stuff. You know, like they they tried so hard last summer to put stuff out there about Subban. And you could tell who, you know, they were talking to, who put stuff out there. But you know, like there was uh, one person reported that he was late for practice 18 times last season. It's like. Do you really believe for a second in your head that Michel Therrien would not healthy scratch P.K. Subban once in a season where they have no chance at the playoffs if he's late for practice 18 times? Give me a break. Alex Ovechkin got scratched for for being late to practice once. Like, it's so ridiculous. It's so absurd. And the kind of things like the Montreal Canadiens are the most crusty, old-school, conservative organization and possibly pro sports and you think they would give like an assistant captain letter to PK Subban if he's a problem in the room or an off ice issue? Nah, man, it's not happening. Yeah, uh, reeks of a uh, some of your campaign when the guy's out the door for sure. Um, Absolutely. All right, Andrew, I'm glad we uh, I'm glad we did this uh, emergency weekend reactionary trade freeze PDO cast. I was. Uh, it was fun. I feel better about the moves now and try to make sense of them a little bit. And hopefully uh, the fine folks out there appreciate it as, as taking time out from our grocery shopping duties to, to do this thing. But um, yeah, where can, uh, where can people find you online? And then what are you working on these days? Uh, always, they can find me on Twitter at Andrew Berkshire. Uh, currently, I'm working on a five-year retrospective of Mark Bergerman's tenure in Montreal for Vice Sports that should be out 
like shortly after the expansion draft, I think, because it'll depend on who they let go, uh, who they protect, that kind of stuff. Right. And I'm also starting up my uh, summer project for Sportsnet of the top 20 players at each position. So mm-hmm. actually, I'll probably be reaching out to you, Dimitri, to help me do some ranking. Yeah. Fun stuff. Everyone, data. Everyone loves lists and ranking. And uh, Oh, it's the best. After you, after you get that out, I'm sure we're, uh, we're going to get you back on the podcast to kind of do what we did last summer in ranking the guys, because that was, that was one of the funnest sort of preseason things we did early in the year. Absolutely, man. Count me in. All right. Chat soon, buddy. Talk soon. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO Cast. Mm-hmm.